One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In theory, Northern Ireland still has devolved government. But Stormont hasn't functioned properly for more than a year. It started to unravel when the DUP First Minister Paul Given resigned in February 2022. It is my earnest desire that all sections of the community will soon be able to give consent to the restoration of a fully functioning executive through a resolution to the issues that have regrettably brought us to this point. It has been completely shut down since the Assembly election in May 2022, and there seems to be no immediate prospect of its return. Well, this is uh, us giving a clear indication to the government that insufficient progress has been made, that there remain key areas of concern for us, and they need to be addressed. Is it time we accepted that the parties simply can't work together? People in Northern Ireland are facing a cost of living crisis. They're concerned about the state of our health service. And what they want is government to deliver change. And instead, what they get is government which is held to ransom, sometimes by Sinn Féin, sometimes by the DUP, and a cycle of crisis and collapse. Is it time to move on? Is it time for Plan B? And if it is time to move on, well, what are the possible alternatives? Well, here to discuss those possibilities, I have our security correspondent, Alison Morris, and our Northern Ireland editor, Sam McBride. Alison, Sam, once again, you're very welcome to the Bell Tale. Thank you. So, Sam, I'll start with yourself. Stormont, where are we at? I spoke to you maybe about six months ago, and you thought, ah, about September time, it'll all be back. Are you still so confident? So, I'm not so confident, but let me just explain the basis for my confidence at that point. It's that all for all parties, and particularly for the DUP and Sinn Féin, all roads ultimately for now for both those parties lead back to Stormont at some point. The question is when. It's the least worst of the various options before them at this point. It gives them the most power, um, even though that's constrained by power sharing, etc. Without that, they have no power whatsoever. And these are parties that like power. They like to be in control of things. They like to influence how Northern Ireland operates. And they've been used to that. I thought that the DUP would at least try to get Stormont back this autumn. I wasn't sure that it would happen, but I thought that they would definitely, that Jeffrey Donaldson would really make a push. I'm now not sure that he will. I'd be surprised if he will. There have been various situations over the last few weeks where the prospect of Stormont returning has receded significantly. Most of them focus on the Windsor framework. That was the key thing that he had to be able to say to his party, look, this thing is pretty good. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. 
And increasingly, the mood in the DUP and the mood in wider unionism is that it's pretty rubbish. It doesn't really change very much. And the difficulty for Sir Geoffrey is that October is one of the key points at which we really start to see what the Windsor framework is, as opposed to what people claim it to be. And if he tries to go back into storm in two weeks before that, and then people see that there are problems, as happened when the Irish Sea border started at the at the at the outset, um, that's a massive vulnerability for somebody who is not yet very strong in his party. Alison, what's your feeling? Well, I am going to say that when, any time that I may have mentioned the autumn, my crystal ball was malfunctioning at that time. And I know, I mean, I, I have spoken on, on, I knew I was coming in here to do this and I don't just rock in, as people would think, completely unprepared 20 minutes late. I do actually check and, you know, anyone I've spoke to, in the DUP or anyone of influence has said the chances of a comeback in the autumn are a lot less now than they were even a month ago. And that's the truth because basically the clock's run down. They've run down the clock in terms of what is actually possible in terms of what Westminster can do. So for them to return, we know that Geoffrey Donaldson had said that they needed something significant. We believe that means legislation that's bolted on to the Windsor framework, which is quite possible. The framework itself does need domestic legislation in order to function. But what the British government can't do is change the substance of it, can't change the substance of what they've agreed with the, the EU. But the thing is, even Chris Heaton-Harris, the Secretary of State, has said previously, well, the DUP haven't told us what this legislation looks like or what they want. So no, nothing progressed. And now we're coming at the summer recess. So nothing's going to happen. You go back in again then um, in September. You almost go within weeks straight into party conference season. So nothing's going to happen then either. Um, where is the time for this legislation to be devised? Now, the only other thing is maybe they're not telling us and maybe there's all sorts happening during the summer. I know that the DUP have handed over that report, that internal report that they had to the British government. Does that contain specifics as to terms of the legislation that they want? But the only thing that they can get is they could maybe get something, some sort of a fudge in and around the constitutional position of Northern Ireland and it being protected in terms of that um, trade from the, the from Britain to Northern Ireland. But what they can't get, and this is probably key to trying to convince um, some within their own party, is they can't get anything specific in legislation on EU law because that would require them to go back to the EU and have a complete renegotiation and that's not going to happen. And what then what happens after this, the party conference season is obviously the talk will turn to a general election. So next year we're going to have a general election that usually we know general elections happen on a Thursday. That could be the last Thursday in October. That could run into November. Um, are the DUP trying to hold out to see if they can get something better? The British government don't really seem to be pushing to try and get a, resolu a resolution with the DUP. They're relying entirely on this current government saying, right, tell us what you need and we'll help you get it. And that clearly isn't happening. We're not saying that there's any real push to help them out in that terms. And then we have a very divided and very split DUP. The last person I spoke to in relation to this said, we always, you know, people like myself, like the media, always say, well, there's two DUPs, you know, there's one faction and there's, you know, the more moderate faction. He says there's pretty much three at this point in time. So you have the people who are dying to get back into storm and busting to get back in again, couldn't get back in again quick enough. Um, and they are usually the people that you'll see at Jeffrey Donaldson's side when he's giving press conferences Um But then also people um, like Paul Gibbon, which maybe you wouldn't have 
previously thought would have been someone who wanted to get back in. But he's he's been telling people, especially in his own constituency, that he would be keen for a return to Stormont when the time is right and sooner rather than later. Then you have the, the people, the sort of Westminster team and people who are some of the party officers who just basically give up on Stormont. They're not interested. They certainly don't want to play second fiddle to Sinn Féin, First Minister. They want nothing more to do with it. And then probably the largest proportion is the third section in the middle who are saying... Well, we could go either way, but if you you need to give us something, you know, before we go back in again, we're not going back in again without something. What do you got for us? What are you going to give us? What are you going to produce? So that they can basically not just save face, but also then look as if something has done to prepare the Windsor framework. And what Sam has said is right, because come September, all of that sort of green lane um, part of the Windsor framework will all start being implemented. And then we will see how that works or doesn't work. And let's face it, this is a massive change in terms of trading arrangements. It's always going to come with teeth and problems, probably quite a lot of teeth and problems. So really, the DUP don't want to be back in Stormont where that's all unravelling and falling apart. They're probably going to wait and see how that plays out. So if there is going to be a return, I mean, January now would probably be the soonest when I would possibly think that it could happen. But... Um, there are people in the DEP who I think would just like to have give up on it and not return at all. But I will say this with a caveat. When Sinn Féin came out of the Assembly and when Martin McGuinness collapsed the Assembly, there were people who were very senior in Sinn Féin and especially that very powerful backroom um, team of Sinn Féin who said to me, give up on that. We'll not be back in there in your lifetime, to me. And then they did go back in again two years later. So things can change. Alison, I remember one of my favourite quotes from yourself is, nationalists are so over Stormont. And as you say, they went back. I just wonder, are many people in the unionist community so over Stormont? Uh, what, I'm, what do I mean by that? Like people are protesting about, about the, the, you know, about things in life, the, the cost of living. They're striking for wages. I have never heard anybody saying, bring back Stormont, bring back Stormont. Like, nobody cares. And I think there there is there is a wider situation there than simply unionism and its view of this. I think there is a cross-community sense that Stormont was pretty dreadful while it was there. Of course, it's even worse not having any system of government. Even a bad ruler is better than no ruler at all. But it's not something that people are marching in the streets for. I, I was talking last week to somebody who's a very senior Stormont figure, who's a nationalist, and they were trying to make the argument that actually people were a bit more open to the idea of Stormont, that they really hadn't given up on it in terms of their voters, their supporters. Uh, but I think that most people of whatever political persuasion looked at Stormont and didn't really like what they saw. They saw scandals, they saw very poor government, slow government. Um, their side got a little bit, but it didn't obviously get everything because that was the nature of power sharing. And so it was this halting, limping, um, very ineffective thing. And it not being there doesn't strike people as um, as, a, as a massive calamity. And if, if you think about the most emotive thing that might get storming back, the health service, people are literally dying because of the state of the health service. That hasn't moved DUP support at all. DUP support has gone up after the winter we've had where people died because of the state of the health service because their supporters care more about these constitutional issues, these tribal issues than they do about that. That's true on the other side of the fence as well. But the really interesting thing is this. A lot of people who are thinking like that are not entirely stupid in how they approach this because they look at Stormont and they say, we just don't believe people who say if it came back, the health service would be better because it got worse while Stormont was there. And so therefore, this this, this is something which is uniting, I think, people who are so tribal that they're not quite rational about these things, but also some people who are thinking about it and actually just think we need a better system of government and Stormont isn't it. 
I think the most hopeful person, uh, the most hopeful remark is that maybe by January. But I wonder if Stormont is moribund now, but if it if its final demise comes about, I mean, who who is that a victory for? Is it a is it a final victory for anti-agreement unionism after all, or could that actually suit Sinn Féin in the end? Well, it could do both things. So it would be a victory for anti-agreement unionism in the sense that they always said, Jim Allister always said, Bob McCartney always said, Jimmy Bryson always said, all of those people said, it can't work, it won't work, it's an impossible system of government, it won't bring good government. So in a way, that would be right. If it all falls apart, well, that would prove them right. But what might come out of the um, other side of that process might be something that they um, dislike even more than Stormont. They might have even less control, less say over how Northern Ireland is operated. And some of those people hark back to the idea of direct rule as a very British sense of Northern Ireland being governed, not quite maybe as British as Finchley, Margaret Thatcher's old constituency, but in a, in a pretty straightforward way from Westminster, with Westminster running Northern Ireland, running running public services. I think there are very few people, whether unionist or nationalist or other, who expect that to happen. And if it did happen, I think a lot of people now realise how problematic that was, not in a constitutional sense, but in a practical sense. British ministers flying in here for a day or two every week, civil servants running things without real accountability. That was a disaster. That's that's how the water um, system fell apart with a lack of investment. That's how all of, um, not, not all of the problems, but many of the problems which now afflict us um, came about. So... It's not going to be that. And if it's not that, what is it? These people might not like the alternatives. That's it. It is going to be a case of be careful what you wish for. You know, this is something that they have, they didn't want, they didn't vote for in 98. There's people in the DUP who never liked the Good Friday Agreement and seeing maybe Brexit as an opportunity to try and dismantle aspects of that. But what they'll get on the other side will be, you know, definitely not what I think that they were voting against in 1998. You know, they might be concerned at the fact that the nationalist vote is rising, that there is a, a Sinn Féin first minister designated for the first time, but just simply refusing to participate. And devolution is not going to change that. It's not going to change the demographics of this place or the voting patterns of this place. And you're just working in ever-decreasing circles. They might be, um, currently, this might be popular with the people they vote for, but the majority of people who, who they should be representing don't even vote. And that's the point, you know, that working class, that loyalist vote, you know, that very sort of hard line, I suppose, who are wedded to the union and who are loyal to the union, they're not coming out to vote in any numbers. I mean, we've already done this. I think that Seymour Hill, that very loyalist constituency just coming into Lisburn, one of the boxes was showing something like a 32% turnout. I mean, that's wild, you know, con- considering you can get like 70% turnout in some places in West Belfast. So the the fact is, who are they? by going by the polls and by going by the people who vote for them, it is not necessarily representative of the whole of unionism because many people are completely disenfranchised in politics. And if I was in the DUP, I'd be asking why. I'd be asking why are these people so turned off by politics. And they're not future-proofing their party by getting those young loyalist people enthused and getting them out to vote and getting them, you know, involved in the political, aspect of their day-to-day lives to try and save the union. So they might well get a storm and they'll never come back, but they're also contributing to the demise of the union in the, you know, in the long term because that's exactly the trajectory it'll go on. We're not going to get um, direct rule. We're going to get some form of joint authority because we already basically have that now anyway. If you're looking at some of the aspects of the health service, I mean, I was in a taxi the other day and the taxi man had went down south to get his, his hip done and then come back up and we got reimbursed from that because there's now we have this cross 
support our health service that existed. You know, we have so many other bodies and the, the fact that the um, southern government is, you know, uh, financing those nursing training places, all of that means that we're coming closer and closer together. So that's what they're going to get. It's OK, keep going, but you will get joint authority. Well, before we examine joint authority... Because I know, I know I know people have different ideas about joint authority. Let's look at some of the other ideas that people have mentioned. <laughs> um, some of the list. Uh, uh, the are these actual ideas? Yeah, well, just... well I, 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 citizens' assembly, where people are chosen by random. And I just think it's the way teenagers talk about randomers. So a collection of randomers. There is it, no such thing as choosing people by random in Northern Ireland. That works in the South because it's basically one community. If you start randomly generating chosen people here, within less than 10 minutes, you'll have a, oh, where did he come from? Who his dad is? Do you know who he's related to? Do you know? It, it just, it's just, that's a disaster. And then, so then what you do, you appoint people to it. Well, that's a forum and of the I, great and the good. And that's I know, a different thing altogether. And I know who those people are. I deal with those people every day. And that is, you know, who are really, you know, the you call them the great and the good. But it is. I mean, it's, it's the, it's, you know, the people who show up at every single event that's going, the people who love and earn selfie, the people who love a bit of self-promotion. And is that reflective of society as well? So representatives of academics, community groups and NGOs, would they do a better job? Well, First of all, on the Citizens' Assembly, I agree with Alison on this, and I agree not just myself, but I was talking to somebody who was involved in organising the Southern Citizens' Assemblies recently, and they were dismayed that this was being talked about in the North. They just thought it could not work here. And if you think about how this works, there are two significant areas of controversy with with Citizens' Assemblies. How the people are chosen to be on them, that's the first bit, it's meant to be random, but how do you choose them? And how do you choose the experts who present evidence evidence to them on which they base their decisions. Those are two enormously um, potent areas for controversy because you pick the wrong people and the whole thing's a nonsense. It doesn't reflect society at all. And in Northern Ireland, how do you get that right? And even if you get it right, how do you get it right in a way that people perceive it to be right and they don't believe that the you had too many people with such and such a name or uh, which looked a certain way or the expert was from such and such a university and it should have been that one. And I mean, it's it's just ripe with problems. Yeah, you'd be, and, you'd be tracing people's fucking ancestors back to partition, like to complain about them. But the, the thing about it is, too, I think it, that sort of form can work well in an advisory role to a functioning government. That's the difference. You know, the Citizens' Assembly in the South was part of, it was an addition to an actual functioning government, you know, to give ideas in terms of how things were going. It wasn't an alternative to that. And that's that's a very different thing. So what we're saying is here, we're so dysfunctional, we couldn't even pick a group of people randomly. And I don't, I couldn't even get you to engage with the idea of a forum of the great and the good. It just I, eyes rolled and we're, we're not going, even going to go there. So let's move on to a coalition of the willing, i.e. that if anybody wants to take part, you, you adjust the, the, the nature of Stormont and if anybody wants to take part in, in the assembly and the executive, they do so. So that's, that's a better idea, right? It's better democratically. It's better in terms of its simplicity. It's better because it's closer to what we have right now. So it's not some completely new and quite potentially mad idea. But it's not straightforward. So think about this. Sinn Féin blocked Stormont. Now the DUP are blocking Stormont. So the big parties, they can block Stormont. There's a lot of sense, and I've written that, that the government should do this, in getting rid of that veto. 
Ironically, right now, Sinn Féin don't want rid of that veto, even though it suits the DUP right now. So both of these parties want that. When it's in their interest, they can put the big push the big red button and stop everything. That doesn't make sense. You've got 75% of the parties want to govern. One party doesn't. You can't. I mean, that's, that's completely um, contrary to basic democratic principles. However, it's one thing to say that it makes sense to offer a party a place in government. And if you don't want it, you sit in opposition. That makes sense. But the difficulty is that it's not as simple as that. The Good Friday Agreement has vetoes uh, laced through it at every layer. It's there throughout the legislature. It's there throughout the executive. It's there in committees. It's there everywhere. You cannot do that without dismantling the Good Friday Agreement. So this thing that most of society uh, was cheering several months ago and saying, what a wonderful thing, it would make a really significant nonsense of that um, celebration of the Good Friday Agreement to then say, well, you know what, after a few months, this thing hasn't really worked. We'll just tear it up, go back to majority rule. The whole point of the Good Friday Agreement was to get away from majority rule. And that's messy, and that's problematic, and it might not even be workable. But that is what the Good Friday Agreement is. I do think that that sort of mandatory coalition was never intended to be permanent. I mean, it was... It was designed and the architects of it designed it to go over a very specific hump that existed at that time, which was basically to stop violence and stop us spiralling into further violence. You know, at that time, those people who came up with that form of government assumed that that would maybe last five years, maybe 10 years at most. And then we would transform into this wonderful, mature society that was able to govern itself in a very normal way. And that clearly never happened 25 years on. The, the problem with it is, and most people would say, well, yeah, if you're going to if you're gonna refuse to take part, well, then go and sit in the opposition benches. It's simple. Sounds simple. But the thing is, you couldn't even change that aspect. And the Good Friday Agreement has been changed before. We know that. It's been changed in St Andrews. You could change aspects. As long as you keep the principle of consent, the bones of the, the Good Friday Agreement, you could change it, but you could only change it while the government's functioning, while the, the executive is functioning. It would require the executive to be functioning and everybody in it to participate in that debate, to say, shall we change our form of government? Would this make us more effective legislators? But you require them all to be there. And, and ironically, the one person who pointed out that this can't be done without the DUP is Bertie Ahern, the former Irish Taoiseach, who said it would be insanity to push ahead and change the law without bringing the DUP along, just like it would have been insanity to change the law when Sinn Féin were out and push on without them as well. And think about how that how that would look to a typical DUP supporter, a typical yeah. loyalist, typical traditional unionist. So for 25 years, there's been compulsory power sharing government where the lead party of unionism and nationalism have to be in the executive or you don't have an executive. And in the minute unionism loses its top position, then the rules are rewritten to say, actually, that's not really necessary anymore. I mean, it would be disastrous in terms of community relations, in terms of their perception of fairness, in the same way that I think it would be disastrous to have this idea that Seamus Mallon posited and other people have talked about of changing the rules on a border poll to say that having said to Sinn Féin for years, you get over the 50% mark by one vote, you get a United Ireland and then say, you know what, actually maybe it should be 60% just at the point they think they might be getting it. Rewriting rules like that in the instant is very, very difficult. It's, it is It is the case that, you know, you know, hard cases make bad law. And right now, if you were to start making law based on the situation we were in, that would be the wrong thing to do. You know, and in fact, any changes that are going to be made, and one day we may have a different form of government, I think because of the growth of alliance, it's inevitable that we will eventually. But it should be done in a spirit of proper negotiation and not done or forced upon one section of our society because the whole point of the Good Friday Agreement was to stabilise our society, not to destabilise it further. Well, next up, 
and I think we've touched on it already, but let's let's discuss it. Joint authority. Now, it may be you could dismiss it out of hand. Obviously, it, it, it would be a radical change. But when Julian Smith and Simon Coveney were kind of doing their double act, they finished each other's sentences. They stood beside each other. You know, they were. <laughs> Simon was up every day. It's, did, did it? Was it joint authority light? Well, it was looking a bit like that to some unionists and they didn't like it very much. Um, I mean, was it was it more substantive than that in terms of the real heart of what was happening there? I'm not sure. There, there were clearly situations there where the British and Irish governments agreed. They agreed on trying to get the parties back into government, just as they agree on that now. So there's no controversy there. But on issues that really matter where they disagree, was the British government going to say, you know what? we're not going to do what we would like to do, even though we're paying the bills and we have sovereignty and all of these reasons why we might just do what we want. We're going to let you take this decision. That's what real joint authority would mean. It would mean that both sides are equal partners, essentially, in running Northern Ireland. And it's clear that there is going to be more influence for the Irish government if there is no Stormont. I think everybody can see that. However, the idea of joint authority as most of us understand it, where they're actually taking decisions about how Northern Ireland is run, is completely unthinkable. It just couldn't work. It, again, would be contrary to the Good Friday Agreement. Um, it's not It's not in the Good Friday Agreement, so you'd have to have some sort of referendum or something of that nature to pass it, which in itself is not entirely without problem for unionism, because in a referendum of that nature, if unionism doesn't have a credible alternative, they could be on quite a sticky wicket there. But I think that the idea that the British government is going to send whatever, £20 billion a year to Northern Ireland, Ireland that they're going to say to the Irish government, yes, they're sending a tiny amount of money by comparison now for individual projects, but the idea that they're going to say, you can decide how this is spent, you can decide where a university um, operates or where a hospital is moved to or whatever, it's not credible and there, there is there, there is no um, comparable situation that I can think of anywhere in the world where two sovereign states jointly run a territory and take decisions where there is a, where there is a contest between those two sovereign states and within the territory itself. I mean, you know, it's it's it's, it's basically unthinkable. I would say I'm going to give you some background gossip now. The the Simon Coveney, um, Julian Smith sort of double act. If people will remember, they they came out. It was pitch black. They presented the document. They sort of bounced the parties into it, let's face it. Nobody was even across the detail. The next morning, morning we found out there was no money for any of it. But um, I was in Stormont the next day. This was supposed to be this big, massive day. So um, we had Leo Fradger come up into to Stormont. Maybe it was the day after that. Anyway, so Boris Johnson flies in. This is, you know, government's going to be restored. And it was all really supposed to be choreographed. And it all fell apart because unionists were so outraged at the fact that Julian Smith and Simon Coveney had been standing presenting this deal side by side, that they had been basically... I'm going to use the word slobbering because that's the right word for this. They've been basically given off to the British government and the NIO. So what we then had was the um, the Taoiseach and the Prime Minister did not, as we were told they were going to that morning, stand beside each other and give a joint press conference because that looked too much like joint authority. Instead, they had to do those two separate pieces um, apart from each other because there was nervousness at the fact that it looked a bit like too much like joint authority. Look, we're never going to have that kind of joint authority. You're never going to have an official, this is now how Northern Ireland is ruled. But what will happen is if we continue in the vein that we are, you'll have more and more influence, especially because of Brexit and because of the fact that our trading arrangements are now so closely aligned, you get more and more input from the Irish government. So, you know, we'll have 
we'll never have we'll never have those sort of you know ministers from Westminster as, as Sam said flying in. We will have civil servants with the Secretary of State basically um, overseeing all of that, taking these decisions. But when it comes to like really major controversial decisions, no civil servant wants to take those. They don't want to end up as part in the judicial review court. They don't want the responsibility of it. That's not what they're paid to do anyway. Um, and so you will find that then those are bounced back to the NIO who, if they are of joint interest are clearly going to consult with the, the Dublin government in relation to that. So you do have a joint authority by the back door. And if anyone thinks that we don't have a bit of that now, well, they're very foolish because we do. Uh, Sam, uh, you are stroking your beard. <laughs> <laughs> don't be reading any great significance into that. No, I mean, look, I think there there, there are two there are two elements here. There, there, there are two tracks, if you like, which cross over a bit, but they are quite separate. From the 1960s, certainly from the 1970s, the British government has accepted that the Irish government has a unique and legitimate interest in Northern Ireland. So it's not like any other part of the UK in that regard. That was formalised in 1985 in the Anglo-Irish Agreement. It was then formalised again in a different way in the Good Friday Agreement. That That is one thing and that happens and that will happen and that will continue to expand a bit, I think. It's very, very different to think that if there is a big civil service decision about a planning issue or whatever it might be that might go up to the NIO, that the Irish government are going to get consulted in those individual decisions. I mean, I think that would be ludicrous. It would be unworkable. Um, I'm not sure the Irish government really want to be consulted on that level of detail. But if it comes to big decisions in terms of health, say they're going to close a hospital, you know, a hospital in Uri, say they're going to close that. But then they're going to consult with the Irish government because they're going to say, is there something we can do jointly here? Well, there's a cross In terms of aspect. running that, yes, yeah. So yes. you can see that if, you know, that's a, you take a major controversial decision and you consult with your closest neighbours because there might be a way of saving money by operating those things jointly. So that is, and that does happen. And we know that happens. But that, that I suppose, is consultation. It's very different, Elliot. I mean, joint, joint authority is the idea that there are two people who are yeah. running this. It's like, you know, we're co-editors here running the newspaper or something like that. I mean, it is, it is not simply about saying, look, we're going to talk about this and see what you think and maybe you've a good idea but ultimately it's our decision it's much more fundamental than that even the Anglo-Irish Agreement which is obviously very controversial at the time was about consultation that's expanded now a bit more into other areas but I mean I think there's there's an unworkability whatever the politics whatever anybody would like to happen the idea that Britain and Ireland who have been unable to agree even on things that are much more straightforward in recent years could agree on this I mean it's very what I, what I would say is in the future, and I'm talking about like, you know, way in the future, if we ever had a, a border poll, if that border poll voted in favour of um, a unified Ireland, you will have a transition period. And I have always thought that that would look like a period of joint authority. So you will have a transition period that could be five years, could be 10 years. You know, most people who have any you know, sense and talk about these issues, know that, you know, it's not going to be the British government packs up all their bags and moves out the next day. There will be a sort of long, slow goodbye, if like a sort of Hong Kong style withdrawal, and that will be a period of actual joint authority. So it's not impossible that this won't be how we run things in the future. But I mean, that's uh, probably another podcast for another, <laughs> another yeah. day. <laughs> that's, uh, I mean, that is, I mean, we could do an endless series in pod, of podcasts. <laughs> I just wonder when we come to the... I suppose the most likely scenario, direct rule. Could direct rule be tweaked? Could direct rule, could there be some sort of oversight? Let's remind ourselves that the governing party in Britain and the UK gets practically no votes whatsoever here. So, I mean, there's a huge demographic deficit and neither Labour, Labour don't stand at all. So, hmm, 
And the Tories might as well not stand in most of the seats where they do stand. Um, I have more first cousins than <laughs> the Conservative Party get folks here. Um, I have a lot so, of cousins, but I do have more first cousins. So there's there's a there's a real difficulty with direct rule because whatever about the constitutional elements of this that Northern Ireland is part of the UK, these are people who are not elected here. And so therefore, even though it's better than having no minister, there's some sort of accountability to Parliament and we have MPs that go there for the most part, but it is not in any way comparable to what a democracy should be. However, I think there there are ways that could be tweaked. So first of all, I think direct rule is the only credible option here. It's a bad option. It's not something that really anybody wants outside of the fringes of unionism. And probably when they got it, they wouldn't like it any longer once they actually saw what it was. But it is the only thing that actually as a stopgap measure could happen in the same way as in 1974 after Sunningdale fell, it was the only thing. And they thought then it was a stopgap and it went on for decades. But I think there there is there are things that can be done to improve it. So for instance, one idea, I think it was Jim Allister came up with this idea, and obviously he's got a particular view on this, was that Stormont as a legislature, the the NI Assembly could continue to sit to provide scrutiny for British directorial ministers. Now, that's that's not a perfect idea because it would be this oppositional chamber. They would denounce everything. They would be populist. They would do all of that stuff. To be honest, they kind of do that anyway, um, even even when, when they're meant to be governing at the same time. But that would be better than simply having ministers flying in and out. If they knew they had to come before assembly committees, if they knew documents could be compelled by them, whatever, there would be some sort of democratic scrutiny of it. Um, and I think that it would also clearly involve more of a role for the Irish government than previous iterations of direct rule. But as we've talked about before, up to a point. And so therefore, I think ultimately that is where this ends. But the real the real problem here, I think, for unionists is that when it comes to it, London is less invested in Northern Ireland than Dublin. It matters less to them. We're this tiny little part of the UK, 3% in population terms, just under it. We're a far more significant part of the island of Ireland and we share a land border. And now with Brexit, it's having a very material impact on what happens in the Republic, even for people who might not have thought much about Irish unity before now. So therefore, if there is a, if there is input from the Irish government, there is the potential from a unionist perspective that that becomes quite concerning because they're going to put their best people into it. British secretaries of state tend to be put to be pretty dreadful in terms of their ability. Um, and so therefore, if that continues and we get really poor quality Tory or Labour politicians coming to the NIO and the Irish government is putting its top civil servants, its top um, ministers, its top team into bat on these issues, there's clearly going to be a mismatch there. So it's a very problematic area, I think, for unionism, but I think it's the only way that this can be dealt with in the interim. It's interesting because unionism, you know, when I mean unionism, I mean the DUP specifically, who, you know, promoted Brexit, campaign for Brexit, believing, I suppose, that it would help them in terms of strengthening their sovereignty and it's done the complete opposite. It has turned people in England who would have been sympathetic to their cause against them because they didn't get the Brexit they wanted because of the agitation of, of the DUP and of Northern Ireland's border problems. Um, and then you also have, you know, the issue of the, the, the change in government and, you know, many within the Tory party blame the DUP and the ERG on that complete mess that, you know, forced... Theresa May out of her job, a woman who was, a, you know, a unionist to her core, who would have protected the union till her last breath and said she was pushed out, you know, for, for Boris Johnson. And, you know, they've, they've long memories, they've, there's grudges there as well. Um, and whether they think they'll get a better audience under 
Keir Starmer's Labour, I'm not sure. You know, given the fact that they have aligned themselves so closely with the hard line of the DUP, I don't think they're going to find too many allies within the Labour government either. So it hasn't been, you know, a great, in terms of how they're portrayed now in England by the Westminster government and anyone, you know, you've only to look at the Daily News reports and at that sort of London press, there is zero mention of us in any of it. The Windsor framework, as far as they're concerned, Brexit's done. You know, the the election issues that they're going to be concentrating on in the next year um, are basically the economy, the cost of living and the obsession with small boats and, and immigration. And that's basically it, you know, and that's that's what the battle is in terms of that. There's no very little mention of us and very little space even in parliamentary time for the DUP to even get a voice or get an earn. And you can see that there's, they're, they're showing, there's less and less interest, I suppose, in the DUP's woes. I think at this stage, they're at the point where, well, look, we've bent over backwards. Nothing seems to please us. We've moved on. I suppose as a final question, I wonder if Stormont doesn't come back and to me that means that there's no longer any pretense about the Good Friday Agreement. It's 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 gone. Although many elements would survive, of course. But what would the wider effects of that be? If if we just know, look, this is not coming back. Like surely then we would be on a whole new battlefield, if you like, of politics, a whole new plane of existence, a whole new a whole new ballgame. Well, you have no surprise what I'm going to say. I mean, that just means if that's the case and we're accepting it's a failure, well, then we look for an alternative. And what is the alternative? Do we look towards a united Ireland? Do we look towards a completely new Ireland and trying to build a better place for everyone? Because if there's no alternative to that, but I, I actually didn't think that was a question we're going to ask. When you were building <laughs> up to that, I thought you were going to say, what are we going to do with that big white building? And I was <laughs> like, this just, is a whole other podcast this Kieran would say. <laughs> Well, I, mean, I just I would have assumed it would <laughs> be another hotel. Because it's sitting hotel. up there with the heat pumping through it <laughs> and people up there working. And as I think, what was the story last week that the, the chauffeur-driven ministerial cars were transporting IT equipment around the estate? I mean, eventually someone's going to have to say, what are we going to do with this big thing here? So I think that if if Stormont goes down, if Good Friday Agreement basically goes down, it's a, it's a massive problem for unionism. It's, a, it's an open goal, as Alison says, for nationalism to say, look, our argument has always been Northern Ireland is a failed state. It can't work. It won't work. It hasn't worked. It will never work. Um, we've tried we've tried simple majority rule. That didn't work. We've tried direct rule. That didn't work. We've tried power sharing. That didn't work. We've even tried no government at all. That didn't work. I mean, what, what more do you want us to do? Let's try something else. How much worse can it be? That's a very, very compelling argument for nationalism, particularly with younger people who are just fed up with this stuff. They want to get on with their lives. They want to see basic functioning public services. But I, I would caveat that, that with this one element, which I think is is significant. If you think beyond that, the most credible form of Irish unity right now is the idea that Northern Ireland somehow continues to exist in a united Ireland. So that's the idea that most thinking Republicans right now are starting to, to, to talk about and suggest is at least an interim step towards a unitary state, even if that's what they would ultimately want. And in those circumstances, people like Brendan O'Leary, people like Padraig O'Malley, they're thinking about the idea of the Good Friday Agreement continuing in a united Ireland for Northern Ireland. So basically flipping it around, instead of having Westminster sending us a big cheque, the cheque would come from, um, from, from the Irish government in Dublin. It would handle foreign affairs. It would handle defence. All, all of the things that Britain does centrally, Dublin would do. But basically, Northern Ireland would keep running its own affairs. The PSNI would still be there. The prison service would be there. All of the functions of Northern Ireland's um, system of government would still be there. That argument is more difficult, I think, if the Good Friday Agreement has collapsed at that point. 
it obviously wouldn't be the fault of nationalism if it collapsed at that point, if it was to do with unionism saying we won't work the system. But it's problematic for both sides, I think, in different ways. Who ultimately wins out of that? I don't know. If you look at history, unionism has been by far the stupidest over the last 20 odd years in terms of taking a possible win and turning it into a defeat. But there are potential problems for both sides there. Well, on that note, Sam McBride, Alison Morris, thank you very much. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.